0: Hey there, you're listening to Making Spaces, the podcast about community, culture, and making new connections, hosted by my good Judy, my friend, and yours, Sarah Heath. On this podcast, we're having conversations about design, literally making spaces, and how some of the most inclusive spaces aren't always the most inviting and we're talking about what it means to make space for one another. With the world the way it is right now, we need to find ways to have conversations across lines of radical difference. So join Sarah each week as she tackles the intersection of design and practical spirituality with conversations with some of the most fabulous guests you're ever gonna meet. Some will talk about actual design, some of us will talk about relational design, but no matter what, it's an incredible time So grab yourself a cup of whatever you like, and welcome to Making Spaces with Sarah Heath. I think about the way men respond to discussions of feminism and patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, And it's because, you know, we have this amazing brain uh, stacked in three layers, (laughs) and uh, the two inner layers... They're obsessed with two questions, am I safe and do I belong? Mm. And we've created a system where if you're a man and someone begins to speak about the dangers of toxic masculinity, you start to wonder if you're safe and if you belong, and then you can no longer meaningfully participate in that conversation. And Instead, you're confronted with feelings that you don't want to feel, and so you have to get kind of defensive. You have to go into defensive strategies to regulate those feelings that if we had more access to, we can meaningfully participate.
1: Guys, I know every week I tell you I'm excited to share with you both the conversation and the featured guests on Making Spaces, and it's true. Each week I'm excited because I can't believe I get to share these conversations with these incredible space-making humans. Every week I'm in awe of the wisdom and challenges that these conversations create, and that is certainly true for our next guest. This week's guest is Mike McCarg. He's also known as Science Mike, a nickname I actually gave him and had no idea just how beloved it would become. Mike is a public educator trusted by millions to use empathy and deep scientific insights to help them navigate some of the most difficult parts of the human experience. Through his podcast, As Science Mike, and in both of his books, Finding God in the Waves and his newest book, You're a Miracle, and The Pain in the Ass, Mike is making space for people to engage all parts of themselves. He's been featured in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, NPR, all over the place. He's been a guest at MIT and Google as a featured speaker. Our conversation talks a lot about our need to make space for both our cognitive and our emotional capacity, and how when we do that, we are able to be more present to others and make space for more people. Stick around after the end of our conversation for the weekly takeaway, along with an inspirational quote and a little announcement about the show. I would like to talk about making space for um, like our own brains and for being neurotypical or neuroatypical with you um because your book is so good it's so, so so good thank you i uh i will admit to staying up too late reading um so the first question and that because i don't want to like you know like oprah always wants to capture everything i think i just compared myself to oprah <laughs> thank gosh this is what gets cut out i think that's um, a,
0: it's a favorable comparison
1: <laughs> for oprah um, yes oh um question is this if you could think of it has to be, it can be any space. There's no real rule. Is there a space that you love and then why? Um, and just so you, like Rob Lee said, uh, time was his favorite space. So you, can't, you can get like that weird and layered with it. Is there a space that you love and why? <laughs> I knew it'd make you squirm. <laughs>
0: trying to give you a good answer there's several ways i could go um, it doesn't
1: have to be favorite that's what always throws people is when I, I used to say favorite but now i just say what's a space
0: Mm-hmm. oh i heard i heard the distinction and appreciate it
1: <laughs>
0: um a space that i love is the space created by someone who listens actively
1: mm. yeah yeah And why do you think that is?
0: Because I didn't, I'd never seen and didn't understand active listening uh, for most of my life, actually. And once I saw that, I thought, wow, what a magic trick. (laughs) Uh, And how can I learn to do that? Um, Real active listening, because we're social animals,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, it lets us learn and discover things about ourselves that we didn't know. And active listening is, um, is the cherry on top of a well-tended and curated inner landscape. You can't be an active listener unless you've really done a lot of your work, which is why I'm not always able to be
1: an active, an active listener
0: like I would like to be. But when I see people who do it well, it speaks a lot about who they are and the journey they've been through in their life
1: mm-hmm. it's also a little unnerving isn't it like in a good way when you're sitting with someone who is a active listener and it's almost like i oh no they're really listening to me and that puts a lot of pressure you both appreciate it but it gives it a depth that sometimes we're not used to
0: Mhm. yeah i had to uh had to do a lot of therapy around codependency to be able to appreciate Instead of be terrified by active listeners.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That actually makes sense to me because it's, you're like, uh, I don't know what to do with you being okay. Holding what I'm saying.
0: Right. Right. Like when you're performing, they're like, well, it's okay. I don't need a performance. It's like, well, what do you mean? Then what do I do?
1: (laughs) I I don't know how to, I actually had a therapist say to me recently, um, you can't do anything. And I was like, I don't, understand what you're saying (laughs) like you have to feel the feeling and i'm like "Mm, can i pass (laughs) is there another i know these are
0: all words in a language i understand (laughs) but i don't understand them together
1: (laughs) like i literally had a pen out and i was like so what do i do and she's like yeah no you're just gonna have to feel through this and i was like "Mm, i um i have a pen so i need to have some information here action item feel (laughs) through this i need to check off emotional healing. So if we could (laughs) just sort of (laughs) move through this, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. I loved in your, uh, so your book does such a great job of kind of the title alone, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, making space for what I would say sort of is the tension of truth, right? Everyone, like you're a special, special snowflake, but also like there are some things we hold in common and some of the things we do are really frustrating to ourselves and others. Um can you talk a little bit about what kind of how why why this book? Because I know it started out as something else, and I know you've said this a lot on your book tour, but I think it's a neat story about this wasn't the book you set out to write.
0: Yes. Uh first I have to make a comment. What? We are sitting here on opposite sides of a major American city.
1: It's true.
0: And we're in a pandemic. Uh-huh. And I know you so well and I've spent so much time with you that as you talk, I can see the facial expressions you're making and I can (laughs) see the way that you move your head and my brain reminding me of all those delightful things that I love about your affect and how emotive and how expressive you are. I just miss you so terribly just right now and I just wanted to name that because otherwise I can't continue with the conversation.
1: I have goosebumps and I missed you too. And I think it's hysterical for the listener who is listening to the podcast right before he said how you move your head. I had moved my head. <laughs> he does know me really well. It's true. It's true. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah. Because sometimes I think uh, we, it's just not the same as sitting together in a living room. And actually you read your first chapter of this book to me. Gosh, a while, a year ago maybe, Um, Mm -hmm. and it lingered with me. I actually got your book and couldn't read it for a day because I knew that chapter was in there. (laughs) Um, So thank you. Um, Yeah, why this book?
0: Well, I I just always write the book that I need. Mm. And if somebody else needs it too, then that is wonderful. But I write the book that I need to survive, and um, this book didn't begin that way. Um, It began with me in a season of my life where I thought I had a lot of answers to people's questions.
1: Yeah, you were kind of killing it at that point in our stupid way of measuring that.
0: Yes. Um, And so I was like, I need to write a book about how to kill it.
1: (laughs) I'm now an expert, gather around. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, all people, come gather around my wisdom. And uh, and then I stopped killing it, mm. <laughs> to, to, to use our little ad hoc vernacular here. Uh, my life got really bad,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and some of those circumstances are external, but some of them were me responding to external circumstances and maladaptive and self-destructive ways yeah and i started uh i don't know i shifted from so quickly from kind of self-assessed expert to just trying to survive and make it through each day and every time i thought well at least it can't get any worse it did Ugh. um
1: it's almost like the audience would be like, if that's in your head and we're watching the TV show, and <laughs> at least it can't get worse. And then you hear the, uh, you know, the narrator go, but it did get worse. <laughs> that's did what get it feels worse. like. Yeah,
0: it, and it just did over and over and over. I started having panic attacks and then severe panic attacks and then my daughter Madison um, was diagnosed with anorexia and we started trying to struggle with that, which put our mm. family under a huge financial strain. At the same time, I was getting treated for trauma and PTSD, which was very expensive and increased that financial strain. And then we had to do family systems therapy because of all the therapy, changing the, our patterns. we making things difficult in our home, and then that was expensive. And I got heart disease from all the stress and all the self-medicating behaviors. And mm. our friend Rachel died. Yep. And... um I was diagnosed with autism.
1: <laughs> like, it was quite a season. <laughs> ding, ding, ding,
0: ding. Um, and so I just kind of wrote a book about my struggle to love and accept myself as my life fell apart. Oh. Which like, and there's not the end of the book, is it, and then I got it all back together. <laughs> like, my life is still pretty fractured. I'm still recovering from the period of time in which you read about it in the pages of that book. Um, that book is not about... You know becoming some finished product but learning fundamental things of self-acceptance self-worth self-love and uh, learning to relate to one's own feelings
1: it's fractured but it's true your life is it might feel fractured but it's it's honest and it's true and i think that's the beauty of what you know obviously we can't always say there's something beautiful about everything although there is something to making Meaning of things, Mm -hmm. and it feels like this beautiful chance for um, your honesty to compel the honesty of others. But it really sucks because you're like, No, like I liked just giving the polished version of myself, and I was (laughs) hoping that would inspire people. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I've always tried to be honest. What I realized in the writing of this book is I was honest with everyone else only to the degree to which I was honest with myself and so this season of my life has been getting more honest with myself and as I've done so um, actually sharing less with an audience um, I've, I've, I've for the first time in my life started to practice perhaps some small trivial amount of discernment in what I share immediately and publicly <laughs> <laughs> um, as I've, I've learned to kind of grow and change
1: yeah, it's a it's a hard process, I think, to know what to share and what to be honest about. And especially if you have any sort of public voice, what to uh, let incubate a little, what to keep as yours, because sometimes we can actually damage people um, that we're trying to help when we, you know, reveal what we're working through. Um, and it might be in a place that's not helpful for others. And it's so hard to know that, mm-hmm. like... So hard to know that. And I I just applaud your ability to do it and then your moments when you feel like you haven't got it quite right and you're just like, Well, that wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> swing
0: and a miss.
1: <laughs> I mean there's I, I think about the times like I'll go on Twitter and something's happened and you'll have stood up for someone and then someone's like, I actually didn't need you to stand up for us and you're like, My bad <laughs> Like it's such a it's such a neat thing to see someone who's so willing to um be okay with like oh yeah i'm i'm just trying like everyone else and it offers just grace for other people i was thinking about um so yesterday was the anniversary of the death of our friend and we saw each other um i guess it was the day after um mm-hmm. and you had a difficult panic moment we were at a concert for our other friends trying to support them and i drank more than i normally do and i realized it was just such a numbing experience of wanting to disappear because i didn't want to have to deal with how i actually felt and Mm -hmm. so i'm so grateful to have our community because i i was really embarrassed to our friends who had to drive and you know i you know those are that's not what i do i'm a pastor i don't drink too much you know which is not always true but you know like i don't (laughs) do these things um and to have one of our friends said but you're also a human who lost a friend, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. I can give myself maybe don't like obviously I wasn't driving, so there was, there was not complete irresponsibility. But I just felt so much pressure to um, have a good thing to say about, you know, what happened. And for me being, you know, our our friend group, you guys were, I hate that we measure these things, but you guys were closer to Rachel than. I, you know, we our friendship had just started, and while it was beautiful and wonderful, and was devastating, it's like almost like I felt like I couldn't feel it in the way that I wanted to feel it. And now I'm, I'm just grateful, even for. I don't know if you saw her, her husband's beautiful article about like grieve it how you're gonna grieve it. And I'm grieving a tree today, mm-hmm. and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, thank you, because I, I realize when I give myself permission to grieve, I'm giving other people permission. So thank you for giving other people permission to look inside at their at their brain um so talk a little bit about the book um you're a miracle pain in the ass embracing the emotions habits and then i love this mystery that make you you
0: yeah it's uh it's just your basic um cognitive psychological behavioral economics interpersonal neurological examination of paul's dilemma um
1: clearly (laughs) i i thank you for saying it. I was I was afraid I was speaking too much I wanted you to say it <laughs> what the hell does that mean <laughs> it's uh
0: it's a look at you know Paul's dilemma is this like um I don't understand myself I do what I think is wrong and I don't do what I think is right effectively mm-hmm. paraphrased wildly from what Paul wrote in Romans and um you know, I've been on a weird faith journey, and I've started reading my Bible again. I've even started to read some of Paul's stuff again, which was kind of like the last part of the Bible I could could relate to again, because Paul and I.
1: We broke up in college, but yeah. we occasionally talked about our friend Jesus.
0: Yeah, I think that was a very <laughs> accurate uh, statement for me and Paul as well. Uh, but I read that line, and I was like, all right, Paul, okay. I see you, or you <laughs> see me, or something just happened. Felt the I kind of a connection. And... um, so that kind of that kind of central tension was something that was really on my mind a lot. Yeah. Um, why don't I? Why do I like have heart disease and still want to eat pizza or Oreo cookies, even though I know the consequences for my health are disastrous, not just bad, <laughs> disastrous. And um, and so the book is me like going through peeling back the onion of the human person. And looking layer by layer at where those conflicts with ourselves come from and how we can uh, struggle with ourselves less.
1: Yeah, it's sort of that idea of like, well, no, I like, especially for you, where knowledge is so important as you think about, you know, just even the way that your brain works, which I love, but like you've never met a question you're not willing to research. So like for you, you're like one moment, please, and like you turn around, like accessing. if you don't know the answer, accessing you're like, right. And so for you to know, like no, I know, and knowing is important to me. I know what's right, but I can't do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that dissonance between the two is, I would say, the human condition and story. And what's funny is I think we are most awful to people when we ourselves aren't able to recognize that in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, no, like I can follow rules, so you need to follow all the rules. Mm -hmm. Like I get feisty when people don't follow rules because I don't have grace for myself, so why would I have grace for you?
2: (laughs) Mm.
1: And I think that's the beauty of examining it. Um, Have you found as you've, Sort of been sharing it. Um, what is, has it been a surprising reaction from people?
0: Um, well, it just it just came out. The nice thing about a pandemic is people are making it through the book faster than they usually would. Right. So I have noticed I'm getting feedback quicker than I got on the first book. Um, most of what I'm getting so far, I think, is people saying that they cry a lot reading it, mm-hmm. and that they now want to re-read it. Yep. Um, And so I think maybe if some of the ideas in that book are new to you, if you haven't done like trauma therapy or, or emotionally focused therapy, um, reading the book is just like this tiny first step on a journey. Yes. I'd um, imagine that people would need to go back on certain areas on like emotional grounding or emotional awareness, and then try to figure out, now, how do I actually try or practice this today and for the next six weeks or six months? Uh, and then maybe come back and read this part again. Um, it's not, you know... My last book was a a bunch of questions, basically. And a bunch of responses that True. you could apply if they were helpful to you. And this book is much more like, here's some theory and some stories of mine about some things that can only be put into practice through like really gradual self-work.
1: Yep. Um,
0: and so you can't like... it's not It's not like... 15 days to a new you. It's like, um, here's the first three steps of 3,000 on a road to <laughs> a more satisfied self. Um, which is not a, it's not an incredible tagline for an ad campaign.
1: It's weird that that didn't do well.
0: Uh, yeah, the the publisher turned that down immediately as the title, but I kid. Uh, but, um, yeah, that, uh, I'm, I'm pleased how many people are receiving the book with the intent with which it was sent. Yeah. That's been really encouraging to me.
1: It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of hard work to look at it and it's, um, I am laughing cause I'm just realizing I read, uh, our friend Jen Hatmaker's book about being fierce and free and mm-hmm. full of fire and this, and there, there are all the kind of books that you like read a chapter and you're like, that was a good chapter. And then you're like, oh crap. Mm-hmm. That means something a lot. And I have to like think about how that actually has, like how am I going to respond to that? Because
2: mm-hmm. if
1: it's a challenge and I it's, unfortunately this is not a spectator sport. And I know you hate sport analogies, but this book is not a spectator sport. It's like you have to participate in it where you're just sort of like, again, you're just doing that thing where you're collecting knowledge, which usually when people just collect knowledge, it's in order to like, it over people, right? Like, I know the thing, the stat, but like lived and shared experience. Woo. Now you're talking about church. Like, that's the hard work. Yeah, and for for
0: for a Mike McCarg book, there's actually not that much information in this book. <laughs> I know, is, I think
1: I only worked, looked up so far two words, so I feel yeah. good about myself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, didn't, I don't even think I talk about physics the whole time. Uh,
1: <laughs> there's always time for a appendix appendix what is that no, that's true the,
0: the, the, there, there's two appendices that those appendices. are probably the the, yeah. the 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 densest areas in the text
1: i think uh, if you were to sort of uh say that where you what you were hoping to land for folks is that they would see themselves in the tension as okay is that a, a correct read of it like I yeah mean, it's going to be a long journey but that's okay
0: yeah, but okay. I don't want people to see themselves as okay. I want people to adore themselves. <laughs> I want them to look in the mirror and think, what a marvelous creature I see right now. Um, and we have such deeply indoctrinated shame that such a notion sounds absurd or even um, you know, narcissistic or something. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a deep well of, of self-grace and self-gratitude and self-love. Mm. Um, because when you have that, you stop being so obsessed with self. You stop being plagued by such insecurities all the time. Yes. On the days that I really love myself, I am the best listener and the most supportive friend. Um, because I take care of me. And on the days when I struggle more with with my own worth and my own belonging and my own acceptance are the days that I am the most difficult friend and I am the most difficult, uh, for myself to live with. Um, and that's why the book is, is, is so centered around helping us take a redemptive perspective towards the things that aggravate us the most about ourselves and our lives.
1: We're going to take a brief break from this conversation to listen to some messages from our sponsors that make this podcast possible.
2: We here at the Making Spaces podcast believe that politics are important, that they matter, and that you should care about it too. Even though this is a presidential election, there are many more candidates on the ballot besides the president. Yes, those other names mean something, and they do jobs that mean something. So, go to Ballot Ready for a nonpartisan guide to your entire ballot. From there, you can compare candidates based on stances on issues, biography, or endorsements, and then save your choices to use when you vote by mail or in the voting booth. You can even request your absentee ballot or make a plan to vote early or on election day. This election matters, so make sure you have a plan to vote and to vote informed. I mean,. We know that this year has been crazy. The U.S. Postal Service is under attack. We all feel a certain type of way about it. So make your vote matter. Make it count. Make sure it gets there on time by going to BallotReady.org and entering your address to make a plan to vote and to vote informed. Be informed. I even think about myself
1: and the things that frustrate me about other people, the moment when I actually look at it quite often, if I'm willing to be self-reflective, it's because it's something in me that I have shame about. Mm-hmm. Like, um, how dare you live in a way that I wish I could live or how dare you like, be the part of me that I don't like? Um, or I don't give myself permission to be, whatever it might be. And I think there's this um, nasty side to it. And I think, honestly, our country is in the midst of othering people with this very like, we are going to just make it sound like bipartisanism is everything. Like, how can a virus be bipartisan? But we've seemed to figure it out um, and make it so that you are, we are nothing alike. We are nothing, you know, this is an entirely different kind of person and this is an entirely different kind of person. But when you do that, it's quite often because you don't want to self reflect. I find the people that are least um, angry are usually the ones who have done a lot of self reflection and, and not in the narcissistic way. And there is a really bad narrative out there that um, to reflect is to be, like there, there can be some navel gazing that can be difficult for people to swallow sometime, but they if it's at least trying, I think it's good. I, I think there's a, a need for it. Um, in the book, you explain a little bit about people's brains. When you think through, um, the ability to have grace for other people, what do you think is the biggest step for you? Has it been kind of doing your, looking at your own brain?
0: No, actually, the brain stuff comes easiest to me. Okay. Um, what, so, like, because it's easy, it's not as helpful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the hard stuff for me is, is looking at feelings, and how feelings interact, and, mm-hmm. and the role feelings play, and getting to um, honor and accept the feelings that I find difficult or shameful, like sadness or anger.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's been the hardest work for me on that journey. Um, But for other people, it'll be something else. Yeah, Uh, That's kind of why I take that that approach in the book of here's some stuff about the brain and how the brain makes you really drive yourself crazy. And then here's feelings. Here's how feelings make you drive yourself crazy. Here's how compulsion cycles and supernormal stimulus lead you to drive yourself crazy. Here's how uh, social media and digital media... make you drive yourself crazy here's how uh relationships make you drive yourself crazy and just kind of hit ding 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 all these different areas because uh, obviously i struggle with all of them to some degree
2: mm-hmm.
0: um but i tried to look back at um all the questions people send me oh yeah and uh and kind of look at where people struggle and then reverse engineer a book. Uh, from questions so that it would resonate with the most number of people possible.
1: Yeah. I, I find it, um, you know, when we go out in public, I brought my friend with me one time when we went to uh, hear our other friends speak. And he is, uh, this friend of mine is just not uh, in our world at all. Right. So like we have an aggressively specific niche where you and aggressively, a couple. Aggressively specific. <laughs> it is. I love it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> the people who love you love you. Yeah. It's aggressive. Um but in a great way. A and great way. like even your voice, people will hear your voice and know who you are. So I had we were going to my friend's show which my friend I you know he my friend didn't know who he was or what he did because he didn't grow up in a Christian background and so came with us um, and we were it was at a like had a little bar in it, and we were just sitting chatting or whatever and people would hear your voice and come up and ask you very deep personal questions so they would say or just want you to know hey this helped me do this right beautiful beautiful things and it was wonderful but I laughed because my friend was like he kind of looks at me later and goes who is he because <laughs> we had like gone and had dinner and like hung out and he just knew he was my friend and he was like he's like Really famous, but like I don't for what. And I told him he was like, "Oh, that's really cool," because we're talking about science. And Mm -hmm. um, I said, "People who have gone through, particularly faith deconstruction or reconstruction or adjustment, there is this tenderness, like, and you do such a good job of walking with people in that tenderness. And then you also have this other world of scientists or people who are like me, science minded, like." I would say I enjoy science Mm -hmm. Um, and and you do such a great job of sort of bridging those two things together for exactly. I think the reason because one group struggles with one thing and one group might struggle with another. And then Mm -hmm. it's so wonderful and such a gift. And I think it comes out of your own desire to like make sense of it together. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's also, I'm science minded and science tells me that feelings are the primary driver of human behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. It's true.
0: <laughs> and then in science communication, we tend to ignore people's feelings.
1: <laughs> <And> they're like, <laughs> why
0: aren't they responding? Well, maybe, maybe we need to bring in some emotional literacy and uh, emotional awareness. I would dare even say an emotional focus into public science education and advocacy uh, because science really can help us solve a lot of problems. So many problems but it needs a better bedside manner if it's gonna work into people's daily lives.
1: It needs some rebranding.
0: Yeah, yeah, it needs deep rebranding and it it just needs a different approach to communicating with people. Like we are not primarily cognitive oriented organisms and science tells us that. And yet so often we as people who love the sciences can be guilty of assuming communicating the data and the information is enough
1: but I gave you the data. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, I, I do liter-
0: there's literally a chart right here. Um, here are
1: the five reasons why this should happen.
0: Well, I mean, I think about right now, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of this pandemic and the epidemiological picture is so clear. And also the cell phone data is so clear that people are not staying home. <laughs> Correct. Um, and it's because from a public policy perspective, we're not doing a good job of um of uh me helping people meaningfully address their fears and their anxieties and so in desperation they are seeking the kinds of things that make them feel better, going outside, seeing friends, uh, doing those kind of things. And our failure to communicate in a way that resonates emotionally, um will have a cost in human lives and that, that cost will be significant.
1: Yeah, it's the um you know, it's a weird trope, but it is kind of true that sometimes people that are incredibly um, science-minded don't, um, don't have the ability to necessarily uh, see why that gap is important. And it's almost like you have to show the emotional connection between the two. I think there's such a giftedness in figuring out how to tell a story in a way that connects people to the meaning of the information Mm -hmm. you're giving them. So, giving like just almost like the same reason i use the bible when i start preaching even when sometimes i'm like i don't know how i feel about this but it like lets people like kind of start in the information and then maybe dig a little bit deeper right so it's like here's some facts but then let's like connect that to emotions and the same reason emotions shouldn't be disconnected from from science right it's it's a two-way we need each other a lot is all i'm saying Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm
1: our heads. I would love for you to explain the right and left brain thing because I think it's great for people to understand that it is not all or nothing.
0: Yeah. Um, that's one of the parts of the book that I researched and I was like, wait, what? And learned I was wrong about something I say all the time.
1: <laughs> Go. Uh,
0: so there's, this, uh, there's this notion, really pop, and like pop neuroscience, that people are right brain or left brain and that's because your right brain is creative and your left brain is analytical so if you're a left brain person you'll grow up to be an accountant or a (laughs) lawyer or something where you just like crunch numbers and ideas cerebrally and if you're right brain you'll grow up to be an artist or a writer or a poet and uh, that's a really dated model in neuroscience it's very old
1: we still hear it well, it's,
0: it's it's because it's it communicates clearly it l- helps people identify themselves so you learn that and immediately you go oh wow, i'm so smart now i know i'm right brained right it's like it's very gratifying so it doesn't matter that it's wrong <laughs> <laughs> um and as you know our understanding of the brain has gotten more advanced we realize like The left brain is reductive. It sees pieces and parts, and the right brain is holistic. It sees the whole of something, and that means your left and your right brain are involved in analytical reasoning, and your left and your right brain are involved in creativity. Um, the left brain tends to take more of a top-down approach. It begins to begin in neocortical structures of the brain and move down in its processing. The right brain, on the other hand, tends to start with deeper brain structures and move out towards the neocortex. And um...
1: I'm just picturing your your plastic brain that I love, that whenever we have these conversations, even if we're in your living room, you bring out. (laughs) uh,
0: It is right here next to me. I'm holding it in my hand, so uh, well done. And I also you can't see I have a pointer and I'm pointing to pieces of the brain. Oh no, I as can I see do. it
1: inside my mind. Uh, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Keep
0: going. And so what we realize is in Western society especially, we have a tendency to train people that the left brain's approach is better. And right. the right brain offers a necessary, even essential check on the reductive capacity of the left brain. Um, because of its ability to see the whole it does a better job of like resonating with other people's experiences hmm. and and that means like when we just go kind of cognitive reductive we can go to some really dangerous pl- wonderful places don't get me wrong I like penicillin penicillin's um, good I like uh, Wi-Fi. I like all those re- things that come from cognitive reductive thinking but if we're not careful if we don't let our intuition and our feeling brain and our holistic brain offer a check on our cognitive reductive brain. It can take us into really dangerous places. Um, and uh, and so the, you know, part of the, the the thrust of my work lately has been helping people understand that dichotomy of their brain, so that they can try to bring their experiences into more balance. If yes. you are a totally person who's living in a reductive headspace, like learning to integrate more holistic thinking if you're uh... primarily cognitively oriented learning to bring in more intuition and feeling and the other way if you find yourself uh... thrown around by the whims of your feeling and intuition then well then maybe you need to learn to uh, process your feelings more completely and you might need something like cognitive behavioral therapy to come in and invite your cognitive brain into the process but for people who are overly cognitive like me cognitive behavioral therapy sometimes is like an excuse to go deeper into patterns that are destructive and then you need something like emotionally focused therapy and so the whole thrust of what i'm talking about here is uh there isn't like a one size fits Mm -mm. all mental health solution there's a process of assessment and learning and then applying specific strategies that help you kind of achieve a greater sense of balance compared to where you began
1: Yeah, I think that narrative that's most harmful is for people who have always been told that they're highly intelligent. Like you're very, what's great, Um, oftentimes those are the people who struggle the most um, because they have been celebrated for going into that headspace. So it's like, okay, I'll just go back. This is a problem I can solve. Mm -hmm. Here's how I'm gonna solve the problem. And the problem isn't with your thinking, it's the Paul thing, like you can think this thing but are you feeling Mm. this thing and
2: Mm
1: -hmm. that doesn't it doesn't come easy it's not something you can check off it is something you have to actually do practices with and help yourself experience in a way that um, can be really uncomfortable um i you know i think it's such a beautiful thing for you to invite people into that journey and i would say um, offer them a, a travel mate and a partner in it like okay I may not know you, but I can tell you, together we're gonna think through what does it mean to use both sides? Um, Because we're doing it anyway, so what if we just got better at doing it? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I think we dehumanize people, and I would say, when we ask them to be completely one way or or another. But then there are things like, you know people who have to make really tough decisions, um, and it really does affect their emotional well-being, and we tend not to care give, I think about military folks and things like that. We mm-hmm. ask them to just sit in one part because the other part could be dangerous, but then how they human in the world has really been affected.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. When we when we train people um, to lose access to parts of their feelings, when we condition people to have a phobic response to their own empathy, um that can really take our species into difficult difficult places and and threaten our ability to build a society that we actually want to live in you know i mean i think about um the way men respond to discussions of feminism and patriarchy yeah uh and it's because you know we have this amazing brain uh stacked in three layers (laughs) and uh the two inner layers they're obsessed with two questions. Am I safe and do I belong? Mm. And we've created a system where if you're a man and someone begins to speak about the dangers of toxic masculinity, you start to wonder if you're safe and if you belong. And then you can no longer meaningfully participate in that conversation. And instead, you're confronted with feelings that you don't want to feel. And so you have to you have to get kind of uh, defensive. You have to go into defensive strategies to regulate those feelings that if we had more access to, um, we can meaningfully participate, so.
1: Well, it's also the idea that you've been told, um, yet your like, y- your value or your worth um, is being strong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even to engage this conversation, it's n- not just like, am I safe? But it's, do I matter in this? Mm-hmm. Like, if you matter, as if there's only so much amount of mattering, you know? But if you take up space, then I, wh- where does my space go? Whereas it like grows, right? Mm-hmm. We actually grow, the space gets bigger, and there's space for all of us to be bigger, but it's almost like if you take up the space, there's no space for me, where do I go?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's mm-hmm. that safety, and I recoil, and women, the conversation I've had a lot lately is like, as. You know i've discovered i'm most likely an enneagram three i've lived my entire life thinking i was a two because a two is a really nice thing to be as
2: Mm -hmm. a woman
1: right like Mm -hmm. you just get all the affirmation for it but like i had so much shame around achieving that and anger and hurt around i want to do these things but like i had shame around it because my love of community was well if i become a woman who does all these things which i was doing anyway but not addressing, I'll Mm -hmm. never be accepted Mm -hmm. by the knight in shining armor or the Christian church or whatever it might be. And so that again comes from this idea of like, if I'm partnered with someone who's big, I can't be big.
2: Mm -hmm. And it just
1: destroys all of us and it makes us all walk around trying to shrink or expand into the space. And I just hate that we do that and I think the, really the only answer is to like, start talking about brain, start talking about why are you experiencing that? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's great when it's friendly fire, like you as someone who you know, exists as a large white male, um, I mean height-wise by the way, you've been doing great. <laughs> oh, sounded awful. Um, you've been doing great and healthy. Uh, but that idea of like, hey, uh, I know how you're feeling is it this, and then it it feels a little bit safer, right? you're kind of like drawing people, you're speaking their language
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, I think that's I think that's the I think that's the goal and where we need to go next mm. um and trying to build a society where everybody is uh valued and included and you know given the same access to resources right. is that uh, those of us who are men or who are white or who are able-bodied or straight or cis or whatever learn to take ownership over our feelings and over mm-hmm. our experiences so that we don't you know get so devastated when we have necessary but difficult conversations and then we can show up in solidarity with people who are who are just realizing that not everybody has the same life experiences and not everybody has the same access in society and in culture. And when I can come along another man, and say, oh, yeah, wow, this does sound really scary and really threatening. I get it. Mm -hmm. It used to sound that way to me, too. Um, And when that person now begins to feel safe and belonging, they can more meaningfully engage in those conversations. And I think that's just such important work.
1: The conversations are really important, and I think, you know, even why I started working on this podcast, or even the, all the work I do, I I just want people to know people, mm. um, not just because Barbara Streisand's great, but because <laughs> this I realized I was like people, um, my ADHD is fun. I think if people know people who have, who are neuroatypical, or who are you know the the thing that you are calling like i know what it means to be this and most often i say are you in deep relationship with someone who is that
2: Mm -hmm. that Mm
1: -hmm. other thing you've created um it's only through relationship that i think we are able to move a little bit right Mm -hmm. and it's never from like yelling at each other or giving facts if that was true my gosh how much you know And how do we weed through facts? We can't um, because we're getting so many different, you know, intakes of facts. I mean, I did see something that I did laugh about, which was like, you know, there's all these epidemiologists and all these doctors. But like, I'm really glad your high school friend told you it's safe to go outside now. You You know, we have kind of created this weird system where anyone can share information, I guess we could call it information. Um, And then even the like questioning of news that is real to be fake news, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's only through relationship and experience that I think that we move a little.
2: Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. we're
1: in a place of having looked inside. And I think that's what, I think that's what you're asking people to do, is like you can be in better relationship to others by being in better relationship with yourself. Um, yeah. All right, friend, we are getting towards the end, which is such a bummer because I all of a sudden forgot I wasn't sitting in your back office. Um, I was like, wait, other people are listening to this. This isn't just like, Sarah has some thoughts. Um, and That's once, really
0: what this para- podcast should be called.
1: Sarah has some thoughts. Sarah and, has some thoughts. And she has some friends who have some better thoughts, so she brings them on, and then they have better thoughts, and then some artists. Um, I would love to know, I always say, is there like one tangible way for someone to make space for themselves is there like one like starter or just one small thing think about it it was like if this is the first time people are hearing this sort of thought do you think there's just a tiny thing it doesn't have to be the best thing either just like one thing that you think would be helpful for people to start on this journey of making space for themselves
0: every day i go sit in i've got this nice comfy chair in my office it's by a sliding glass window So as I sit there, the sunlight will come in and it's not in my face. It's kind of off to my left. It's just pleasant. I just like it. Hmm. And I sit in that chair and I say, okay, body, how are we?
1: Hmm.
0: What do I feel? And that's new for me. I've only been doing this for a couple of years now. And you might think a couple of years, that's a long time, but compared to how long I've been alive, a couple of years is just moments.
1: Or in that body. Yeah, you've yeah. had that body the whole time.
0: <laughs> and so my body is usually like, hmm, how about chicken wings? It's like, okay, I get it. I like chicken wings. Uh, what feelings do I feel? And I never know. And so I kind of scan. I start at my belly and I see what I feel and how big I feel it. Do I feel tightness? Do I feel heat? Do I feel cold? Mm. Do I feel jitters? Whatever. And then how big? a little tiny dot or is is as big a circle as I could stretch out my arms? And then I move to my chest and I see what I feel there. A lot of times in this pandemic, I feel tightness in my chest. Mm-hmm. Yep. And my shoulders. Gosh, my shoulders even right now in this podcast are tight.
1: Mm.
2: As
0: my body tries to hold so much fear and anxiety about what's happening in the world. And I move and this process can take five or eight minutes. And, uh, Five
1: or eight. I love you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I move to my head and my face and my eyes. And as I focus on the sensations in all those places, even if I don't know what to name that feeling, and a good therapist can help you learn to name your feelings. If I sit and focus on the sensations long enough, the feeling becomes obvious. So often I feel anxiety. And whenever I feel anxiety, I'm like, okay, who sent you anxiety? Hmm. Uh, because anxiety is usually sent by another feeling that's afraid to be seen. And oh. When I feel anxious, so often what I actually feel is sadness or anger. Mm. And then when I realize that those are the feelings, I sit in my chair by myself and I say, that's okay. It's mm. okay to feel that feeling. As it starts to happen, I go, that's good. That's good to feel that feeling. And I just give myself the little affirmations I need as a person who's new to Emotional expression to feel comfortable, allowing my body to feel something, and then I might cry mm. if I'm sad. Or I might get angry and grit my teeth, and clench my fists if I'm angry. And as that feeling washes over me, which can happen really quickly in like 30 or 40 seconds, or it can take a few minutes. On the other side of following that feeling, the whole way is usually a revelation some insight about where the feeling came from.
2: Mm.
0: And so often right now, when I realize that I'm afraid and I I realize what I'm afraid of, I'm afraid that I won't be able to take care of my family through this pandemic, Mm -hmm. or I'm afraid that someone I know and love is going to die from COVID-19 and giving myself the space to feel those feelings, to let them out gives me such, Greater resiliency, it makes me feel better, it lets me uh, be less controlled by impulses and medicating behaviors. And I think such a major growth for so many of us in taking care of ourselves is learning to create the space for our own feelings.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, friend thank you so much for sharing that thank you for being willing to i know your week's been really busy so thank you for taking time to chat with me and thank you just for being someone that i absolutely love and i can share my feelings with because it makes it a Mm. little bit easier i
0: just so love to talk with you sarah
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's conversation. I'm challenged by Mike's invitation to make space for our own thoughts and feelings so that we can actually create healthy spaces for others. I loved his practical sitting practice. Maybe this week, take some time to sit and get curious with your own feelings. I've been practicing this, and let me tell you, it's not easy. But I think most things that are helping us grow take us out of our comfort zone and feel like they're really not easy. And now for a content announcement, speaking of comfort zone. I've had a lot of folks asked to hear more practical ways to physically make space, especially for other people. And as Mike says, it's theory and practical that merge to create the world with which we want to live. So from now on each month, we will be doing one episode where I share with you a design element that makes space. This will help us balance between theory and practice. Our first episode will be next week as I talk about why I put wheels on my pews and what our seating actually communicates to other people. I think this episode will be really helpful as we begin to think through the spaces we will regather in after shelter in place. These practical makers episodes will be shorter and will have YouTube content, including photos. So please let me know how that works out for you. And we'll be taking listener questions for the once a month episodes. So feel free to ask questions on my Instagram. You can find me at Rev Sarah Heath or even leave a message on our anchor site if there's something that you would like to see. And now with no further ado, this week's inspirational quote. We are very, very small, but we are profoundly capable of very big things. This quote is from renowned scientist Stephen Hawking. Making Spaces is edited by Stephen Burnett from the Cult Podcast. The introduction music is It Can Be Done by Ari via Epidemic Sound. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and let us know that we're on the right track.